first time visiting us on a Sunday morning here virtually, I just want to say thank you so much for checking us out and then also say good morning and welcome to everybody who's a normal attender of Res City. It's so great to gather together even though it's not, again, in the normal way, although it's becoming more normal, I suppose, for us to be doing things this way. Uh, I'm excited for us to be able to be back together, but for now, this is the best that we can do and it's actually been really exciting to see how God has been faithful uh, to us in the midst of all this. Um, we are going through the book of John. We have been for the last uh, month and or, month or so, and, uh, uh, so here. Um, we're in chapter 2, at the second part of chapter 2. Now, last week we, were, um, we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, and um, Jesus spends his time up in Cana, and we're going to find this week he actually heads down to Jerusalem, um, which is a bit, of a bit of a trek for him, and he's going to come into contact with the temple. Now, one of the cool things about this, the, just the way it worked out today, is today's Palm Sunday. Julia read from uh, the book of Matthew today to talk about Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. In the book of Matthew, and in Luke and Mark as well, um, immediately after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he actually goes to the temple and does what is traditionally called uh, the, the temple action, or the cleansing of the temple. This is a really big moment in Jesus' ministry career. Now, for some reason, John puts that story earlier on in the book, and uh, I'm not going to you know, get into that uh, now, but actually, if you do want to ask a question about that, you can during the Q&A. So this is a little reminder that you, we have a Q&A afterwards. We can ask all sorts of different questions related to the sermon, so go ahead and consider that. But what I want to do first uh, as we get started is just read the passage, and then what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through it and, and break it down. Okay, so here we go. John 2 verses 13 to 25. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with me, or if you want to open another uh, tab up uh, on your computer, you can do it there. And also, we should have it up on the screen for you as well. So, uh, let me get started. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the, the, for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So today, as has been made clear, uh, hopefully so far, we're actually talking about the temple, this the gigantic uh, structure in the middle of Jerusalem that was kind of the center of life uh, for for the Jewish for the Jewish not just religion but way of life. I think we think of it like it was some religion that was just kind of a separate part of their life. That's not the way that that ancient people thought. It was really the center of their life. And when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about a cataclysmic event, which would be like the, the removing of the temple would be a similar disruption 
to people's life as social distancing and coronavirus has been for us. I would even, I would even say even more so than that. So the disruption that you're feeling right now, Jesus is talking about an even greater disruption uh, to life than, than what we're ha- having going on right now. And to kind of to illustrate that, I kind of want to give you a good sense for, for what that means when I say it, because that's going to be really important for us to understand uh, the, what Jesus is saying about, about destroying the temple, about another temple, which John brings up, and then what that means for us today. To kind of give you a sense for, for what that looks like in its first century context, I want to walk through the day of a fictional Jewish couple from the first century, Gabe and Naomi. So, so congratulations, you get to meet Gabe and, and Naomi. They're actually the owners of a, of a sandal business, and it's actually the sandal business uh, for the everyman in these tough times when, when Roman taxes are high and everyone needs to work overtime just to make ends meet. Um, for, for the long days in the field, uh, if you're out on the boat, for those who have to travel between Galilee and Judea regularly just to kind of keep the family business going, uh, Gabe and Naomi sandals, it has patented support for those who are on their feet all day, and it's like a Sabbath for your feet. Your feet will say amen um, when you buy sandals from Gabe and Naomi. All right? So they, they live in Jerusalem, and, they, and we're just pretending they sell their sandals uh, locally in the region of Judea. Now today for Gabe and Naomi is actually a really busy day. First of all, they get up in the morning, and just like every faithful Jew, um, in the tradition of the prophet Daniel and at the command of the great king Solomon, they, they take time to pray towards the temple. Now, the reason that they do this is because this is the place where God uniquely dwells. He's, he's told Israel, I'm putting my presence in this place. Um, it, it's the overlap between heaven and earth, kind of like a Venn diagram, the, the center part of a Venn diagram, but for real, in, in not just in theory, but in reality, God's presence uniquely dwells there. Even though God is everywhere, we know he's in the temple. And it's just kind of like addressing a letter or writing an email to, to God. You, you want to send that to the right address? We would pray towards the temple because that's where God dwells, right? So we want to get in touch with him. That's what we do. And so, um, after that, after that kind of normal part of their day, um, Gabe has to get out really quick because he's got a lot to do. So first of all, um, he needs to sell a couple pair of sandals, of course, got to keep the money rolling in. But then after that, he heads to the temple. He's going to run over the temple to drop off his temple tax, as well as uh, the temple tax for Naomi's family who live up north in Galilee. Because they don't live nearby, uh, Gabe and Naomi bring their temple tax in every so often when it's needed. Because every person in Israel, every Jewish person, was supposed to be giving the tax to the temple. And this helped uh, to, um, to, to kind of make the regular functions of the temple work, including the daily sacrifices. These were kind of offered on a regular basis to sort of maintain the relationship between God and his people. Now, what Gabe was also going to do while he was there is if he got there in time, if there was any... Uh, leftover from the peace offering sacrifice that had been offered. He was going to take that home, and that was going to be dinner for him and, and Naomi that evening. And also, while he was there, again, just, just in case he got there in time, um, he was going to maybe purchase some leftover meat uh, that maybe would be available to take home, and that could maybe form the basis of their meals for the rest of the week. In the ancient world, you didn't really have butchers and meat shops because your local temple, and this isn't just true in Judaism, um, would be offering sacrifices on a regular basis, and your priest was actually your local butcher as well. So it kind of worked out both ways. Now, um, on top of all of that, 
Gabe and Naomi had just had a new child, precious little Hannah. And so Gabe was going to offer a small sacrifice now that Naomi's purification had ended from the birth. See, this wasn't a sin offering. There wasn't anything sinful about being unclean. But what had happened is God had set up these laws to help keep his people um, uh, distinct and separate in certain ways that mattered. And one of them was to help them be hygienic. And we can understand sort of uh, the value of that, especially now as we're dealing with coronavirus, the, 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 the value of staying hygienic to try to keep diseases from spreading and to kind of keep yourself uh, clean. And this ritual purification actually kept that happening. The Jews were one of the most hygienic people actually in the ancient world because of the laws that God had given them. And so you would go to the temple or your local priest to sort of um, offer up a small sacrifice to, to show that your purification period had ended. So on the way into the temple, Gabe walks by several of the chief priests, including the high priest that year, Caiaphas. Now they're chatting with Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman prefect, kind of like the, the county commissioner. Um, for, for the area uh, over Judea. And, and the, the priests and, and Pilate and his delegation would meet regularly to discuss the matters of governing the people. The chief priests are supposed to be the ones who would mediate for the people, kind of be in between God and the people, but also they would end up mediating between the Roman officials and the people as well. Now Gabe knew one of the matters being discussed was what uh, people could set up shops in the temple courts because Passover was coming up and a lot of people would be coming in and it would be a great opportunity to, to have his sandal business up maybe somewhere near the temple to be trying to get some sandals out. Some of the people coming in from Galilee or Samaria or other parts of the, other parts of the country. So he decides to walk up and ask them what they thought about it. Now the priests in charge give him a skeptical look and tell him, uh, this time Sorry, dude, the, the official Roman sandal makers are going to be there instead. And Gabe asks, well, how come, you know, why would we let Romans sell to Jews? And they replied, well, we run the temple and we think we know what's best for, for Israel. So get out of here, you, you scamp. And so Gabe walks away disappointed. He's, he's obviously upset about this. And as he does, he noticed that someone who'd been watching him from the other side of the temple court walks over to talk to him. He, he comes over to Gabe, he, he says, he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he seems very understanding. I'm sorry about that, man. Most of these pr priests are idiots. They're just stooges for the Romans, who keep them fat and happy, and they keep us from really being faithful to God. If you're sick of it, like I know I am, I know a few people who've been getting together to talk about starting a revolution. Uh, on these guys who, and all of the Roman knuckleheads especially, they're the ones that are causing all the problems here and hanging out in Jerusalem. It's time that we act. God will help us if we act, and he'll destroy these pagans um, and maybe get rid of these priestly puppets as well. And then we can get back to some real good Torah-believing leadership back in charge of the temple. By the way, we call ourselves the Zealots. Gabe paused, looked back at the man, and said, I'm interested. Meanwhile, back at home, Naomi was getting the house ready. See, tomorrow her family from up north in Galilee would be coming down for the Passover celebration. A lamb would be sacrificed to remind Israel, just like every year, of their identity. The people who were uh, set free from the Exodus and now were set apart by God. The free people, the Exodus people. And they did this every year to remind themselves of their great heritage and the great action that God had done for them. And so Jews from all over uh, the countryside would, would gather um, in Jerusalem every year to celebrate this. They would come with their families um, and um, they would watch as the high priest offered up a sacrifice of a lamb to the whole nation, and then they would have a meal together. 
Now, unfortunately, not everybody in Naomi's family would be making it down this year. Her younger cousin, Benjamin, actually had joined with a group of these kind of weird, kooky isolationists that had people had been, been hearing about called in the desert at a place called Qumran. And they actually called themselves the Essenes. Now, from what Naomi knew, from what she'd heard from other relatives, is that Benjamin had become convinced that God was going to destroy, he was going to get rid of, wipe, wipe the map off of the illegitimate priests that were in charge of the temple now. See, they were messing everything up. They thought that they were, they, they were leading the people of God astray in sort of false worship. And so what they needed to do was to separate themselves from the worship of God through that temple out in the desert and wait for God to do this and then everyone would be looking for a peer group of people to run the temple and they would see the Essenes as that people. A lot of people were starting to get excited about this movement. Gabe and Naomi understood the problems but they thought this response was a little bit extreme. They were actually more persuaded by the arguments of the Pharisees, a group of uh, grassroots activists who'd kind of been operating in the region for a long time trying to convince the people that really the right answer was uh, was to, to bring the life of the temple out into the rest of the world, to kind of treat everyday life with the, the, the same sense of purity and holiness that the, temp, that the priests were supposed to within the temple. And if they did that, God would act, their problems would be solved then. So you get a sense based off of this, this fictional story. I tried to weave in all these different movements and, and different ways in which they all interacted with the temple. You get a sense for how big of a deal the temple is. Um, and you can kind of think of like, different political parties, different groups of people who all recognize the significance of being in charge of the White House because of what that means. That's how different people viewed the temple. They saw it as the place that like, if everything revolved around there, everything that mattered was a part of the worship of the temple. And so when Jesus shows up and, and does what he does, you can understand the sort of um, shaking up of things that he's doing, literally and figuratively. So what I want to do is I'm going to walk back through different parts of the passage and we're just going to break down what's happening. So verses 13 and 15. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember that Passover I talked about that Naomi's family was going to come down to celebrate? Jesus is going to Jerusalem for that as well. This was a yearly occurrence. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, when John says the Jewish Passover here, and this is kind of important, it might come up in other parts of the book, I'll just explain what he means here because it sounds like he'll use words like the Jews a lot of times and it almost sounds derogatory. It's probably best understood that John, when he uses that word for the Jews or the Jewish Passover here, he's referring to a specific group, the Judeans. That's what the actual word there is. Um, that were in charge of the temple at the time. So he's actually referring to a certain group of people probably and not all Jews. And so what is happening is according to their calendar, apparently some different Jewish people, um, some different Israelites uh, would, would celebrate the Passover at a different time, a different schedule. But it sounds like this is the time that the people in charge of the temple said this is when we celebrate it. Um, so Jesus shows up for that Passover and, and he's upset. He can see the business that's going on inside the temple and the way in which that, that business, the exchanging of money, is more important than the worship that's taking place there. And that's what the livestock is for, actually. So even though the, the livestock, the, 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 dove, the, uh, the doves, the sheep, the cattle, all these things that are being uh, sold 
Um, they're actually meant for sacrifices. Jesus is aware that what's more important than these sacrifices is the money that can be made off of this stuff. And he's, he's upset that the money changing is, 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 is something that's not the intent of the temple in his mind. This sort of building up a business around the worship that's supposed to take place there. So what he does is he, he puts together this whip of cords and he drives everybody out. Um, in, in verses 16 and 18, he says, To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, what's Jesus' intent here? I think it's definitely you can read this as Jesus just walks in and he's overcome with this anger and he just, he just acts on a whim. And so our application would be uh, sometimes it, you get righteous anger and it's good to act out on that. Now, I think that there is such a thing as righteous anger and I think Jesus is definitely angry here. But I don't think that this is like a, a knee-jerk reaction that Jesus is having. I think it's actually very premeditated and very thought through because it's the official act of a prophet. Now, we, we, Jesus is seen as a prophet, and we see this in the book of John, that other people identify him as such, and I think Jesus saw what he was doing in, in the vein of, of prophets as old. Um, and, and what prophets do is they, they communicate God's word, they communicate hard truths, and they communicate uh, God's anger at, at sin or injustice, and they try to explain what God is doing because of that. Now, the, if you're a prophet, you need to do this in compelling ways. And so sometimes the prophets would do uh, visual acts of, of visual parables, we could call them. Um, sort of rhetorically, um, in a visual way, trying to get their message across. And so we, we actually have kind of crazy stories in the Old Testament of Isaiah walking around naked for a year to get a point across. Or uh, the prophet Ezekiel, he actually does a lot of weird stuff, including laying in his front yard, um, on his side, staring off in one direction for like 400 days um, and building a little, a little model of Jerusalem and smashing it over to try to um, get the point across that God is, is not happy with, with what's, going, what's going on here. And so I think that Jesus is doing something similar here. And, and he, he is he's enacting a destruction of the temple. I think it's clear that the temple authorities see this as well because in verse uh, 18, they ask Jesus uh, for... Um, a sign of his authority. Like, what, author what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So they're saying, like, it seems like you view yourself as a prophet, but if that's true, you have to give us some sign of the authority to explain why you think you can do this. Uh, and, and so Jesus gives them a sign. Uh, verses 19 to 20, he answers, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it, had taken, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Dude, you know how long it's taken to build this thing? You think you can build it in three days? You're going you're gonna to raise it up in three days? That's kind of crazy talk. Uh, I don't think we need to listen to you, you as a prophet. Now, but Jesus' sign here, first of all, there's, there's layers to it. Um, and John brings that out for us. Um, so the sign is that the temple will be destroyed. If you want vindication that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's doing something on behalf of God, you're going to have a sign, and that's that this thing, this thing that you put so much stock into that everyone wants to control, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to turn to ash in your hands. Now, in verses 21 to 22, John clarifies this a little bit for us. This is really helpful for us. The temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. So the sign that the temple is going to be destroyed, I think it actually takes place in two ways. Um, first of all, kind of tangentially, um, the temple is actually destroyed about 40 years later. 
um, at the hands of the Romans. Um, they come in, the, 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 the people like that zealot that Gabe meets in the story, people like them gain so much influence that, 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 that so many people believe the, the right response is to, to get back at Rome in the way that Rome has been ruling over us. And they start an insurrection and Rome deals with it swiftly and they destroy the temple. Now, that's one way in which we, we see that God's word um, comes forth. The temple is actually destroyed because of the, the poor leadership, the poor way that everybody in that time views the temple. But more importantly, and this is the, the point that John wants to draw out for us, is that um, the, the te- there, are, there is another temple at play here that Jesus is talking about. And, and the, the temple leaders, it's lost on them because they can't understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. But, but, but 40 years before the temple is destroyed in AD 70, another more important temple is destroyed. And that is raised up again in three days. And, and that, of course, is talking about the temple of Jesus' body. God dwelling with us in the form of Jesus. Now in John chapter 1 verses 13, something we talked about a a few weeks ago, um, John actually tells us this specifically. When Jesus comes to us, when God comes to us in Jesus, he is coming to us as a temple. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacle, that's the actual Greek word, among us. Um, You can also render that word, he pitched his tent. That's, That's actually all the word means. And, and so, the picture there, made his dwelling with us, pitching a tent with us, is supposed to invoke the picture of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle, which is the very first way when God first establishes his people, Israel, in the Exodus. He dwells with them in this mobile tent called the tabernacle. And John is drawing our attention back to that, that what, what happens is, is Jesus shows up to be a new temple. And so, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, we already have this clue that, that there's another temple, there's another place that God dwells, and it's in fact better than the place that everyone assumed that, that God was dwelling now. And so, what Jesus is saying here is not that this place, this, this other temple, this, this physical, great, majestic building just needs a little sprucing up here, a little cleansing. We've got to get it back to its purpose. He's saying this place is so messed up. And, and I love it so much. We, we read, he, he quotes a psalm, Psalm 69, 9, that the zeal for your house is consuming me. Jesus cares so much about what the temple is supposed to be, that it needs to be destroyed and replaced with something else. Um, think of the temple as a house, okay? A house is somewhere where you live, where you dwell. That's all it's supposed to be. It's just a place where, where someone can come and make their dwelling place. If the house and what it symbolizes and who or who owns it becomes more important than the people living in it, then God says it needs to be destroyed. And that's what had happened here. God had said, no, listen, it's not about this temple. It's about me dwelling in it. And so when, 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 when this building becomes more important than me, when you're more concerned with um, the political ramifications of being in charge of this place, when you're more in charge of, where, where, you're, where you're more uh, concerned about the, using this place to, to grow your, your business portfolio, like this place needs to be destroyed. Okay? It, it's come to symbolize injustice. It's come to symbolize a twisted understanding of God. Um, it's rejected its call to be a showcase of God's glory to the rest of the nations because so many of the people who wanted to own the temple were trying to keep everybody else. Okay? And so instead of being a light to other nations, now it's like a barricade to other people seeing how great the glory of this dwelling God is. And so, and so Jesus says, this place has become an idol. It's become a prison in a sense. It's kind of, 
It's locking in who God is supposed to be. And so it needs to be destroyed. And, and because it's being destroyed, God is coming in another way. And so now I am the place of forgiveness, Jesus says. I am the place where God uniquely dwells with his people. I am the center of life for those who worship God. That's, what he, that's what's being said here. And that's the point that we get that the, the, the chief priests that Jesus talks to earlier don't quite get. Now, there are some explosive implications of that that we're going to talk about here in just a second. But first of all, we can see that it, it does two things. It ruffles feathers, obviously, but it also attracts some people. You can, we talked earlier about there are movements of people at this time who are, are wondering about the place of the temple, wondering about whether or not the temple as constituted is actually, uh, actually right. And so they're attracted to what Jesus is saying. And we see this in verses 23 to 25. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. For he knew what was in each person. Now, I, so, so we see these people are starting to be attracted to Jesus. They hear about what he's done and they're interested. And um, Jesus knows, though, that there is a superficial understanding among a lot of these people. Okay, Because a lot of these people are probably coming from some of these different movements. Some zealots are probably attracted to what he's doing. Some Pharisees are probably attracted to what he's doing. There might have been some uh, from the Qumran community that are there that are attracted to what he's doing. And Jesus understands that some of this belief is only skin deep. So he's not going to go so far as to entrust himself to them because I think he's aware that what they want to do, some of these people, is just incorporate him into something that's already there. Like, this guy seems like a powerful prophet. Maybe if we can get him to, you know, uh, to preach the Pharisee line, that could be really advantageous to us. And so Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to play your game. I'm distinct from everything. And, and when I say that God is doing something different, I mean he's doing something that nobody has right except for me. And so I, instead of me following you, instead of me entrusting myself to you, I need you to entrust yourself fully to me. So he's a bit wary, we find, to do that because he knows where people's hearts actually lie. Now let's turn to application here. Like I said, there are some really explosive application points from this that I don't think we really uh, think about that often. And, and I think actually speak uniquely to where we're at now um, in the midst of the pandemic that we find ourselves in. But I'll get to that one at the very end. The first, the first point of application, I just want to bring this up. I don't want to belabor this point, is that we should not believe that God's presence resides more fully or, or, or in any one tradition. Okay? Now, the temple is a, was a place that God chose to dwell in for a time, and he had worked through, but we find that he was willing to move out of that. I think, uh, and, and he had always in, intended to dwell in Jesus, right? That, that's very clear, that God's, everything that the temple was pointing towards was actually just Jesus himself. And so if you want to know where God's dwelling, you just look to Jesus. Now, I think sometimes what we have all these sort of options and, and teachers that we look to and, and um, denominations and tribes of Christianity that we are attracted to and that we grow from, and it's, it's incredible, right? We're, we're a part of one of those ourselves. We're Baptist. We're, 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 we have certain leanings that we have, right? Certain distinctives that we have as a church. I think where we can err sometimes is that we think that one group or one movement or one teacher contains more of God's glory, that God dwells more fully with them than anywhere else. Okay? And we need to, we need to pause and stop ourselves from going down that route of looking down on other movements, other churches, other denominations who also Jesus dwells with 
and think that we're better than them somehow, that more fully God dwells with us, that we're more sophisticated, more blessed, more fully right, as if God has chosen us as a better group than all these other churches or movements, thinking that we can kind of catch a bottle of God's presence. This says no, that only in Jesus is God's presence made known. And everyone who worships Jesus in truth, and that's important, okay, that that clarifier, in truth, as he is fully revealed in, in the scripture, but everyone who worships him in that way, God's presence equally dwells with them. We just have to remember that and not think that God favors any one movement or group more than the other, okay? Now, a second point of application is to talk about if Jesus is the temple, or God God is, is resting in Jesus, and Jesus is with the church now, all of the church equally, like I just said, then the church is the new temple. And this is our second point of application today. Just like God, God had chosen to make his glory reside in one place, the temple, now he does it in a people who are bound up to Jesus in his spirit. So what, what, what I'm saying is that we ourselves, as a church, as a group of people gathered together, we are the house that God chooses to dwell in. This is what Paul says specifically in Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. He says, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So think about the implications of that. It's, it's almost like Paul is envisioning a, a temple, again, made of bricks. But instead of the bricks being made out of um, whatever bricks are made out of, I'm blanking on what bricks are made out of right now, um, that this temple is built together of bricks of all of us together, right? So each one of us is a brick that has been brought in to build up this temple that God is making his presence choose to dwell in, okay? So that means that, that, that we have a holy calling, we have a great responsibility, and we have an awesome comfort that God dwells with us. And it's just this incredible, mind-blowing thing. I really don't think we grapple with this enough. I really don't think that like, we spend enough time talking about how incredible it is that us as a group of people, no matter how messed up we can be, no matter um, how much we fail to live up to this calling and this responsibility, we are the place that God has chosen to dwell as a people. And so the church is, like we should never view um, our interactions as a church, we shouldn't view, there, there should be no such thing as a regular church interaction. Because that same reverence that, that a first century Jewish person had about the temple is true of the church now. If we really had that view, we would view the stuff we do as a church, I think, in such a different light. Okay? There are no human interactions when it comes to the church. There are only interactions where God's presence is full of them. And so we are filled with God's presence when we are a church, whether we realize that or not. We cannot forget this. There's so much meaning to what we do. Even if it's online, even if it's in a school, even if it doesn't feel like it for some reason, we are the place where God's glory dwells. And so this leads to our, our, third, our third point of application. This is where I want to get really practical with where we're at right now. So if you care about experiencing Jesus, okay, and granted, we're saying that the, the church is where Jesus uniquely dwells. I'm not saying that God doesn't do things outside the church, that Jesus doesn't move outside the church. But primarily, Jesus dwells with his church, and that's where he's doing what he's doing in the world. Then we should engage with the church, even in the midst of coronavirus, even in the midst of COVID-19. Okay? 
Social distancing makes it tough to be the church. I understand that. It's tough to connect with one another. But let's not give up on being the church. Because we continue to be that church even now. We continue to be the place where God's presence dwells. And we at Res City, we take this really seriously and we're challenging everybody watching, whether you're a part, whether you're a regular attender of Res City, or you're just checking us out this morning, to take this seriously as well. I know it's hard, right? I know that there is such a thing as video fatigue. I know it can be difficult to, uh, to, to, to get up and to do Zoom chats as part of church. It's so much easier if we could be together. If we could be laughing together, we could be in each other's physical presence. I know that there are new challenges. I know that we are learning how to do this well as a church right now. And I don't know how long this is going to go on, but there's a chance in which it could go on for quite a while. And so, and so we need to learn how to do that well. And you know, even without social distancing, I know that Christians uh, aren't always, you know, sometimes it's the Christians are not hard, easy to be around. Christians can be real jerks sometimes, all right? And that's true. But that doesn't mean that God's presence does not still rest in the church. It actually means that um, it actually means that no matter what happens, like God has chosen to dwell with us uniquely. And as messed up as we are, we have that hope of forgiveness and atonement that takes place in the temple as well. And so, and so, I want you to really reflect on that. Okay, I want you to really um, to think about what it looks like to continue to be the church even in the midst of social distancing, to engage as if that that's true, even though it's hard to do. That's kind of both a challenge and also an encouragement to you. No matter how weird, how awkward it feels, no matter how much it feels like we're having to do this stuff left-handed instead of with our right hand as we're, we're normally used to, um, we still continue to be God's presence. And that's amazing. And I, I'm so excited that we get to do that. Um, Julie talked earlier about the Benevolence Fund. And like, in God's presence, people are cared for, and that's what Jesus cared about, right? He didn't like that money was just changing hands to, to increase the, the, the pocketbook or the wallet of some people. Um, he wanted people to be cared for as part of his temple, and that's why we're doing this benevolence fund. It's because in God's presence, people are cared for. Yeah, Kinsley, amen. I don't know if you heard Kinsley just bark over there. Um, so if you need help from the benevolence fund, please be, reach out to us. We want to see that happen to you. It's why we continue to meet. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're, we're going to uh, move to a time of Q&A. No questions, Julie is telling me. So that's great. So what we're going to do now is we're actually going to move into communion. So if you have uh, communion bread or, or grape juice with you, please take part with us this week. If you don't have any, don't worry. We're going to be trying to do this every single Sunday that we meet as a church um, online. So, um, you know, please partake with us. In, and maybe for next week you can have some ready. Um, but we're going to do that now. Julie's going to come over here and I'm going to lead us. In this. So we're going to be taking again from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we now take this bread in remembrance of Jesus' body, broken for us on the cross. As you take this, think of, of the temple being destroyed. Jesus' body broken for us on the cross. This is what he's referring to when we talked about uh, the temple being destroyed earlier. It's his body broken for us on the cross. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So now we take the cup in remembrance of Jesus' blood shed for us. 
Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes, Paul says. All right, so we have uh, prayer tonight, like I said, at 8 o'clock. And I'm going to close and I'm going to give you a benediction. We'll take from number 6, 24 to 26. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord uh, turn his face towards you and the Lord give you peace. That's our prayer for you this week. We look forward to engaging with you as the church, as the place where God uniquely dwells throughout the rest of the week. We have lots of things that are going to be coming up, including a coffee hour, which is going to be taking place right after this. So let's be the church. Let's gather together. Let's, let's do it over coffee, over Zoom here, um, right after this. The link is in uh, both of the Facebook and the uh, YouTube um, comment section. So you go ahead and click that. It's going to be starting immediately after this. Angela and Ted are going to be leading that for us. Um, for the rest of you, uh, we, we pray that you have peace this week as you go out. Peace in the midst of the swirling storms of, of, of social distancing, of coronavirus, of fear and anxiety. And we look forward to seeing you all again on Friday night for our Good Friday service, and then again on Easter Sunday. All right, everyone, have a great week.